0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com. A-A-R-O-N-V dot Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by... Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willets. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Single Player Mode, a personalized gaming experience. The newest book from Truest Dunkworth, intended for middle and high schoolers. It is a book as intriguing as it is mysterious. Now available on Amazon. American 11, are you trying to call? Our number one is in staff, and our five is in staff. Possible hijack? What's going on, Betty? Betty,
1: talk me. are you there? Betty. It's 8:52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumble. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them.
0: So you have no idea right, right Other now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> right? Oh. oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Oh. flew right into the middle of it. <gasps> Explosion. That, yes, that was definitely look like it was on purpose. You're listening to episode 172 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the September 11th attacks of 2001 and whether they were an inside job. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. 20 years ago, on September 11th, 2001, the world was shocked when the press reported that four passenger planes had been hijacked in the United States. Two of them hit the World Trade Center in New York City, one hit the Pentagon, and one crashed after the passengers rebelled. The Twin Towers fell and thousands of people died. It was the deadliest terror attack in U.S. history. But was Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda organization really responsible? Were other nations of the world involved? And could this have been an inside job pulled by U.S. authorities? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So last episode, we did a detailed reconstruction of what happened on the four hijacked airplanes and heard actual recordings of the events to document what happened. We also looked at different theories about whether more than just the four planes were involved and whether they were responsible for all the damage that was done to targets on the ground. Jimmy, you concluded that while nothing is impossible, the balance of evidence points to the planes being responsible for the damage. If listeners want to know more about why you came to that conclusion, they can go back and listen to our previous episode, as well as check out the resources you recommended from both sides of the discussion. But this still leaves us with questions about who was responsible for the attacks and what their motives were.
1: So what theories do we need to consider in that line? When it comes to who is responsible, according to the standard account, the plot was carried out by Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda terrorist network and no one else. However, it has been suggested that this was an inside job involving elements of the U.S. government or its agencies, including the CIA, and there have been suggestions that other countries were involved, including Israel, Russia, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, When it comes to why the responsible parties did what they did, this will depend on the particular group that carried them out or groups that carried them out. And we'll look into this question of motive as we determine who was involved.
0: All right, let's start
1: with the standard account. Was al-Qaeda involved? Based on the previous history of al-Qaeda's attacking U.S. targets, the U.S. responses in the months leading up to 9-11 and the terrorist chatter about a possible upcoming al-Qaeda strike, this was a very plausible proposal. In fact, it was a lot of people's first thought, including mine. As soon as Stephen Gredonis called me on the morning of 9-11, while the towers were still standing, I proposed to him that bin Laden was responsible based on my own knowledge of what was already public at the time. The case for this was strengthened when the flight attendants on the planes were able to identify the seat numbers of the hijackers, and we were able to develop a list of their names. Tracing their histories then revealed that they had al-Qaeda connections.
0: Did bin Laden subsequently acknowledge responsibility for the attacks?
1: After September 11th, a series of audio and video recordings of bin Laden were released, but we need to look at them one at a time, or at least we need to look at several of them. The first was released on October 7th, 2001, and in it, bin Laden thanked God for the destruction of the towers, but did not acknowledge or deny responsibility for the attacks. That same day, since the Taliban had refused to hand over bin Laden, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan to get him. On November 10th, U.S. forces reportedly found a videotape in a house in Jalalabad, Afghanistan. This tape featured a conversation between Bin Laden and some of his associates. It was apparently made after the September 11th attacks but before the U.S. invasion. According to the translation of the tape released by U.S. authorities, Bin Laden acknowledges to his colleagues that he had advanced knowledge of the attacks, says that they had calculated the number of casualties that would result, and that the they had sent the hijackers on this martyrdom operation, meaning a suicide mission. However, the accuracy of this translation has been disputed, as well as its authenticity, so I'm going to set it aside. Is it
0: enough that someone questions the accuracy of a translation or challenges the authenticity of a recording
1: for you to set it aside? In general, no. With highly controverted issues like this, you can always find someone who's willing to say, that's not what he actually said, or that's not him but an imposter. If the mere fact someone asserted these things was enough to set them aside, then you could dismiss every bit of evidence we have on any controversial topic, no matter how well grounded it is or what viewpoint it supports. However, in this case, some actual experts in Arabic have questioned the accuracy of the translation. And the fact that this tape was found by the U.S. military rather than released to bin Laden's ordinary media contacts raises at least a small possibility that it could have been faked by our intelligence services. So I'm going to set it aside rather than do a detailed examination of the claims regarding it. The truth is, we don't need this recording to settle the question before us, which is whether bin Laden ever claimed responsibility. There are other recordings that relate to this issue that were not found by the US and that have been translated by native Arabic speakers who weren't affiliated with the US. Thus, even if US national interest affected the translation of the Jalalabad tape, this would not apply to other recordings. What's
0: the next recording we need to consider?
1: It was a video released on october twenty ninth two thousand four, just three years later and just four days before the two thousand four u s election so it was it was an October surprise, as they say. The tape was apparently released in an effort to affect the outcome of the election, which resulted in George W. Bush being reelected, presumably not the outcome bin Laden was hoping for, though some have disputed that and thought that he maybe he did want Bush to win. The tape was sent to the Arabic news channel Al Jazeera, which is based in Qatar. Bin Laden had previously sent recordings to Al Jazeera, and it was one of his favorite media outlets. Al Jazeera then itself made a translation into English and posted it online. As one of bin Laden's favored news sources, it would be hard to accuse Al Jazeera of deliberately mistranslating him. And as a network run by native Arabic speakers who are based in the Middle East, it would be unlikely that they would accidentally mistranslate it, at least in the sense of getting the gist fundamentally wrong. In either event, Al Jazeera's audience of people who know both Arabic and English would be able to spot Any such inaccuracies and hold the network accountable if there were serious errors in translation by pointing them out. And what did bin Laden say in this video? Among other things, he describes how he developed the plan for 9 11.
0: I say to you, God knows that it had never occurred to us to strike the towers, but after it became unbearable and we witnessed the oppression and tyranny of the American Israeli coalition against our people in Palestine and Lebanon, it came to my mind. And as I looked at those demolished towers in Lebanon, it entered my mind that we should punish the oppressor in kind and that we should destroy towers in America in order that they taste some of what we tasted and so that they be deterred from killing our women and children. So with these images and their like as their background, the events of September 11th came as a reply to those great wrongs. Should a man be blamed for defending his sanctuary? Is defending oneself and punishing the aggressor in kind objectionable terrorism? If it is such, then it is unavoidable for us. This is the message which I sought to communicate to you in word and deed, repeatedly, for
1: years before September 11th. So he says that he did not initially envision the strike on the Twin Towers, but he did so after seeing towers in Lebanon being demolished as part of the Lebanese Civil War of the 1980s, in which a multinational force, including the U.S., participated. He then determined that he wanted to knock down towers in America, and so he says the events of September 11th came as a reply to those great wrongs. This also answers much of the question of al-Qaeda's motive for the attacks, why they happened. It was revenge for attacks on Muslims that bin Laden blamed America and its allies for. Also, although we didn't quote this part, he indicates that the U.S. can avoid future attacks if it changes its international policies. So in addition to serving as revenge, the attack's motive also would have contained an element of deterrence, that is, deterring the U.S. and its allies from certain courses of behavior, such as supporting Israel or attacking or being involved in Muslim nations in ways bin Laden disapproves of. He then talks about his agreement with the lead hijacker, Mohammed Atta, saying that the two of them had determined that all of the attacks should occur within 20 minutes of each other. This was something that didn't happen because some of the planes took off late, which Happens all too often, as frequent flyers know, your flight gets delayed. But he acknowledges it, and it was his and Atta's intent to have them all done quickly before the administration could respond.
0: And for the record, we had agreed with Commander General Mohammed Atta, God have mercy on him, that all the operations should be carried out within 20 minutes before Bush and his administration noticed. It never occurred to us that the Commander-in-Chief of the American Armed Forces would abandon 50,000 of his citizens in the Twin Towers to face those great horrors alone the time when they most needed him. But because it seemed to him that occupying himself by talking to the little girl about the goat and its budding was more important than occupying himself with the planes and their budding of the skyscrapers, we were given three times the period required to execute the operations.
1: Here, he refers to the fact that President Bush was reading a book with a class of school children in Florida, when he first got word that an airplane had hit World Trade Center 1. The book deals with a girl and her pet goat, and this moment was made famous in Michael Moore's film Fahrenheit 9-11, which bin Laden apparently saw. Initially, Bush and his aides did not realize that it was a terrorist attack and thought the plane hitting the tower might be an accident, so the president continued his visit with the class. When they learned of the second plane, Bush decided it was better not to project the appearance of panic and did not immediately rush out of the room. He was later criticized for this decision, and bin Laden is joining in that criticism, saying that he and his associates did not anticipate that the president would abandon his citizens in the Twin Towers in this way. He thus expressed his satisfaction that "...we were given three times the period required to execute the operations." So he acknowledges responsibility for the attacks more than once in this video. Could this video be a fake? Anything can be a fake. But in 2001, we didn't have deep fake technology. And this video was released through bin Laden's favored media channel, Al Jazeera. People at the network and others in its audience who were used to seeing and hearing him were satisfied that it was indeed bin Laden. Did he later acknowledge responsibility in other recordings? He did, but we won't go through them all in detail. This would only reinforce the conclusion that, as many suspected from the beginning and as subsequent evidence confirmed, and as bin Laden himself acknowledged, al-Qaeda was involved in the attacks.
0: Have other al-Qaeda leaders admitted that the organization was responsible?
1: In April of 2002, about seven months after the attacks, Al Jazeera journalist Yasri Fauda had an interview in Karachi, Pakistan, with the Al-Qaeda leaders Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Shiv. Both have subsequently been captured by the U.S., but at this time they were still at large. In the interview, the two referred to 9-11 as Holy Tuesday because the martyrdom operation was a holy event for them and September 11th fell on a Tuesday in 2001. Fauda recounts a key part of the interview like this.
0: I looked Khalid in the eye and asked, did you do it? The reference to September 11th was implicit. Khalid responded with little fanfare.
1: I am the head of the Al Qaeda Military Committee, and Ramsey is the coordinator of the Holy Tuesday operation. And yes, we did it. He went on. About two and a half years before the holy raids on Washington and New York, the military committee had a meeting during which we decided to start planning for a martyrdom operation inside America. As we were discussing targets, we first thought of striking at a couple of nuclear facilities, but decided against it for fear it would go out of control. I was dumbfounded. Nuclear targets? Could he be more specific? You do not need to know more than that at this stage. And anyway, it was eventually decided to leave out nuclear targets for now. What do you mean, for now? For now means, for now. Khalid
0: said, silencing me. The attacks, he said, were designed to cause as many deaths as possible. It would be a huge slap in the face for America on its own soil.
1: But who would carry it out? We were never short of potential martyrs. Indeed, we have a department called the Department of Martyrs. So Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Sheib acknowledged that they were responsible for the Holy Tuesday operation, which they also describe as the holy raids on Washington and New York, saying, yes, we did it. Khalid also adds that the initial target selection included discussing hitting nuclear targets, presumably nuclear power plants, but they decided against that for the time being.
0: Let's look at other parties and see whether they also may have been involved. If Al-Qaeda carried out the attacks, what shape would that involvement take?
1: Well, there are two principal possibilities. The first is a strong form of involvement called make it happen on purpose. The second is a weaker form of involvement called let it happen on purpose. A person would have make it happen on purpose involvement if they were actively participating in the execution of the attacks, such as by planning them, funding them, carrying them out, or directly participating in some other way. And the fact that bin Laden acknowledges al-Qaeda was responsible does not mean that other parties couldn't also be directly involved.
0: What would let it happen on purpose involvement be?
1: A person would have let it happen on purpose involvement if they had advanced knowledge of the attacks, but deliberately didn't do anything to stop it because they wanted it to happen for some reason, even if they weren't directly involved in causing it to happen. To give a historical comparison, many people have questioned whether U.S. officials had advanced knowledge of the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941 based on decoded Japanese communications, but then they just let it happen anyway because President Roosevelt wanted to get the U.S. into World War II to help Britain and our allies. That would be let it happen on purpose involvement. Some have even suggested that key people in the Roosevelt administration manipulated U.S. policy in a way to provoke the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. That would be a form of make-it-happen-on-purpose involvement. And incidentally, we'll be doing a future episode on Pearl Harbor, and you may be surprised by some of the material on this.
0: When it comes to 9-11, could other parties have been involved? What about Israel?
1: This was suggested soon after the attacks, with some proposing that Al Qaeda wasn't involved at all and the operation was carried out by Israeli intelligence. This would be make it happen involvement. The presumed motive would be to bring the U.S. into a war with Israel's opponents in the Middle East. And the theory was supported by the claim that Jewish people who worked at the World Trade Center had been warned not to come into work on 9 11. What does the evidence say about these claims? they're problematic. Afghanistan was not a significant rival to Israel, and it's quite far away from Israel. If the Israelis wanted to provoke the U.S. into a war with their actual opponents, they should have framed their actual opponents and not a group operating out of Afghanistan. They should have framed Hezbollah rather than Al-Qaeda. Also, doing something like this would be a move of desperation, because if it were discovered that the Israelis had done this and killed all those U.S. citizens on U.S. soil, it would end the U.S.-Israeli alliance. And that's something the Israeli government would fear even more. Its alliance with the U.S. is an important deterrent helping to protect Israel. Unless Israel was under extreme threat and the U.S. was refusing to help, It would be extremely unwise for Israel to make such a desperate and risky move, and Israel simply wasn't under extreme threat from its opponents in 2001. Furthermore, bin Laden has admitted responsibility for the attacks, and if there's anyone he dislikes more than the U.S., it's Israel. Israel and Al-Qaeda do not get along well, so it would be very hard to suppose them as co-plotters working together to bring about the attacks.
0: What about the claim that Jewish people were warned not to go into work at the World Trade Center on 9-11?
1: This turned out to be an internet myth. If you'd warned all the Jewish people who worked at the World Trade Center not to go into work, there would be records of that warning. I mean, voicemail, email, letters, something... But no such warning was given, and in fact, many Jewish people died on 9-11, including several citizens of Israel who were there. So, between the facts that Israel would be foolish to do this except in dire circumstances, the fact that bin Laden admitted responsibility, the fact that bin Laden wouldn't cooperate with Israel, and the fact the Jewish stay-at-home rumor turned out to be false, I see no good basis for saying Israel had make-it-happen involvement.
0: What about let-it-happen involvement? Could they have had that?
1: This would be much more plausible. I could imagine the Israeli intelligence agency, the Mossad, learning about the 9-11 attacks in advance and then not telling the U.S. if they thought it would be to their strategic advantage to stay silent. And that's not unique to the Israelis. It's often been said that nations don't so much have friends as interests. Any nation— that thought it would be in their interest to watch someone else go to war with somebody else, might choose to stay out of it and keep quiet. Such behavior isn't expected among allies, but it's at least possible. However, the evidence doesn't support this. As we'll hear in a little bit, the Mossad did learn of the 19 terrorists and did warn us about them in advance. So I have no basis for accusing Israel of wrongdoing here. What about other nations besides Israel? Could they have been involved? Anything's possible. And there are allegations that different nations had been involved in various ways. However, most of these accusations aren't particularly well supported or popular even in the 9-11 truth movement. So we won't be looking at every single nation that has been accused, but only certain key ones. I will say, though, that I can't eliminate let-it-happen involvement on the part of any number of nations. What I said about Israel applies to everybody else. It's possible that some nations' intelligence services learned about 9-11 in advance, but chose not to do anything because they thought this was in their self-interest. In particular, given the involvement of Pakistani intelligence with al-Qaeda, I think it's entirely possible that some in Pakistan's intelligence service had advanced knowledge and didn't tell us. And I think it's entirely possible that our government later learned this and chose not to make it public because we needed Pakistan as an ally in the war on terror. I would think that key allies like Britain, Canada, Australia, and most NATO members would have told us. And we will be hearing about allies that did tell us but we didn't take it seriously or seriously enough. What about other countries? Who else should we consider? One possibility is Iraq. After 9-11, there was significant speculation that its leader, Saddam Hussein, may have been involved in the attacks in a make-it-happen way, even if the attacks themselves were carried out by al-Qaeda for a time, members of the U.S. administration were floating this idea. The idea was that Iraqi intelligence would have given al-Qaeda some kind of operational support, even if it was just passing along information or materials, to help the attacks happen.
0: What do you make of this possibility?
1: I can't rule it out altogether. Some have rejected the idea because Saddam Hussein was too secular a Muslim and was not viewed favorably by Islamists like bin Laden. That's true, but bizarre alliances sometimes happen in this part of the world, like when during Operation Desert Storm in the 1990s, Saddam Hussein essentially donated his air force to his hated enemy Iran to keep it from being destroyed by coalition forces. Iraq and Iran had been fighting a war just four years earlier, and they really disliked each other. But Iran also hated the U.S., and on the principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Iraqis thought it better to send their planes to Iran rather than let the U.S.-led coalition destroy or capture them. Since Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden both hated the U.S., I can imagine that a similar enemy of my enemy is my friend situation could have developed, leading to cooperation between the two on 9-11. I can't rule out that the two did have some kind of relationship, at least at a distance, and Saddam Hussein very likely would not have a problem with let it happen involvement if he learned about 9-11 in advance. The question is whether Saddam's agents had an operational role in 9-11. Do you think there's good evidence for that? I don't, because while U.S. officials initially floated the idea of them having an operational relationship, they eventually dropped it. And they really did not want to do that, because they were preparing for the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and being able to say Saddam caused 9-11 was the one thing that really would have clinched the American public's support for the invasion. If they could have made that charge stick, even if they had to stretch the evidence to do it it would have been game over. That would have made their lives and the case for that war infinitely easier. I thus think that the fact the administration dropped the idea of Iraqi involvement in 9-11 from the rationale for the 2003 invasion to be extremely significant. They really wanted to invade Iraq, and they would have charged Saddam Hussein with involvement in 9-11 if they at all could have made a plausible case. The fact they didn't do this indicates that they simply did not have solid evidence of his involvement.
0: Does that mean it's impossible
1: Saddam Hussein was involved? No, it's not impossible. And I'm open to seeing evidence that he was. And we may revisit this issue in the future. But for now, I haven't seen compelling evidence of this. And the fact that U.S. officials dropped the idea indicates that they didn't believe a compelling case for make it happen involvement existed against Iran.
0: The most dramatic claim in the 9-11 truth movement is that September 11th was an inside job and the U.S. government itself was somehow involved in the attack.
1: Are there any other nations we should consider before we look at that one? There is one additional nation whose possible involvement we need to consider, but I want to come back to that country.
0: Okay, then let's look at the idea of U.S. involvement in the attacks. What forms does this theory take?
1: There are various possibilities which we can arrange along a spectrum, from the one suggesting stronger involvement to weaker involvement. As before, they break down between the stronger make-it-happen involvement and the weaker let-it-happen involvement views. When it comes to make it happen, the strongest version would be that top officials in the U.S. government, such as President Bush and Vice President Cheney, gave the order for 9-11, and then it was carried out by covert elements of the U.S. intelligence and or military communities. This would be the full inside job position. A step down would be that Bush and Cheney approved it, even though it was ultimately carried out by al-Qaeda. A step down from that would be that it wasn't Bush and Cheney who approved, but rogue elements in the U.S. intelligence or military community. When it comes to the weaker half of the spectrum or let-it-happen involvement, the strongest version would be that top officials like Bush and Cheney were informed that it would happen. They weren't causing it, but they were told it would happen, and they deliberately refused to take action because they wanted it to happen. A weaker version would be that not Bush and Cheney, but top intelligence officials were informed and then went rogue and deliberately chose not to act. And the weakest version would be that only low-level intelligence officials learned of it and chose not to act. What evidence has been proposed for these theories? The evidence falls into two categories. First, evidence that would suggest that U.S. officials had advanced knowledge of the events, and second, evidence that would show U.S. officials had motive to cause or allow these events. Both of these types of evidence would be consistent either with make-it-happen or let-it-happen involvement.
0: Let's look at the first type of evidence. What would suggest that U.S. officials had advanced knowledge of the events?
1: The kinds of evidence that would implicate U.S. officials would be evidence of things that you need to be a U.S. official to get done. Some of the proposed pieces of evidence have to do with the way the attacks were carried out. For example, if there were no actual airplanes involved in the attacks, then that would point to U.S. officials because only those kinds of people would be able to falsify FAA records and stage the elaborate plan involving four non-existent airplanes. If staging it was even possible at all, given the technology available in 2001 and the fact people witnessed planes crashing into the World Trade Center. Similarly, if planes were involved, but it was a controlled demolition or demolitions that brought down the Twin Towers, that would also point to U.S. officials, because it's hard to see how anyone else could both get the buildings wired with explosives without this being discovered before the explosion, and then cover it up after the explosion. If any of these were true, it would indicate make-it-happen type involvement by U.S. officials.
0: Based on what we covered last episode, you concluded that both of these scenarios weren't well supported by the evidence.
1: Right. I concluded that the attacks did involve the four airplanes based on all the communications with the planes while they were in flight. People can go back and listen to our previous episode to hear that evidence and how I evaluated it. Also, in this episode, we heard the acknowledgement from Osama bin Laden and some of his top aides that they carried out the plot, which also supports the airplanes were involved view. I also concluded last episode that the towers were not brought down by controlled demolition, and you can go back and listen to that to hear why.
0: Are there other arguments that would point to U.S. officials being involved? Ones that don't involve the manner in which the attacks were
1: carried out? There are three principal ones we need to consider. First, it's claimed that the U.S. government was warned of the attacks in advance by other governments, and this was deliberately and maliciously ignored. Second, It is claimed that there was evidence of unusual trading on the stock market that looks like some powerful movers and shakers were aware that the attacks were coming. And third, it's claimed that U.S. officials gave a stand-down order to our military to keep the four planes from being intercepted before they could hit their targets.
0: Before we evaluate those, we mentioned a second type of evidence that U.S. officials had motives to cause or allow the events of 9-11 to take place. What should we say here?
1: Several different motives have been proposed, and they all involve a desire to go to war to address one or another situation. For example, U.S. officials may have desired to go to war to promote regional or global domination by the U.S., or they may have desired to go to war to control key Middle Eastern oil supplies, or they may have wanted to go to war with Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein from power.
0: What about the last of those? Did top U.S. officials want to go to war
1: to remove Saddam Hussein? The evidence I've seen suggests that they did. President Bush's father, George H.W. Bush, had led the Gulf War in the 1990s to remove Iraq from the neighboring country of Kuwait, which Saddam Hussein had invaded. But the Gulf War ended rather inconclusively, with Saddam still in power, which was embarrassing and caused a series of problems over the next decade. And in 1998, the U.S. Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act, which called for the removal of Saddam Hussein and the transition of Iraq to a democratic form of government. So in 2001, I think there was a desire to go back to Iraq, finish the job, and remove Saddam. In fact, the 2000 Republican Party platform stated,
0: The Clinton administration has pretended to support the removal of Saddam Hussein from power, but did nothing when Saddam Hussein's army smashed the Democratic opposition in northern Iraq in August 1996. Because of the administration's failures, there is no coalition, no peace, and no effective inspection regime to prevent Saddam's development of weapons of mass destruction. A new Republican administration will patiently rebuild an international coalition opposed to Saddam Hussein and committed to joint action. We will insist that Iraq comply fully with its disarmament commitments. We will maintain the sanctions on the Iraqi regime while seeking to alleviate the suffering of innocent Iraqi people. We will react forcefully and unequivocally to any evidence of reconstituted Iraqi capabilities for producing weapons of mass destruction. We support the full implementation of the Iraq Liberation Act, which should be regarded as a starting point in a comprehensive plan for the removal of Saddam Hussein and the restoration of international inspections in collaboration with his successor. Republicans recognize that peace and stability in the Persian Gulf is impossible
1: as long as Saddam Hussein rules Iraq. In this, they don't call for war, but they do make it clear that they want to remove Saddam from power, and they also don't rule out war if the Iraqis themselves weren't able to get rid of Saddam. Also, President Bush's former Treasury Secretary, Paul O'Neill, reported that from the beginning of the administration, the groundwork was being laid to reinvade Iraq and remove Saddam.
0: Do you think this desire would be evidence for the U.S. government having make-it-happen involvement in
1: 9-11? No, because it would be stupid for the government to make 9-11 happen the way it did. The evidence pointed to Al Qaeda in Afghanistan being responsible for the attacks, not Saddam Hussein in Iraq. If I were going to cause 9 11 to start a war with Iraq, I would make sure the evidence pointed to Iraq rather than Afghanistan. It would be easy for the government to fabricate such evidence, and the fact that they didn't suggests that they weren't directly involved in making 9 11 happen. As a result, they had to make the case to go to war with Iraq on other grounds, its reported possession of weapons of mass destruction, rather than alleging Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11.
0: What about the claim that the U.S. government had a motive to cause 9-11 in order to go to
1: war for control of key Middle Eastern oil supplies? The decision to wage war to secure oil supplies has been alleged before. You'll recall that in episode 146 on the 1934 fascist coup attempt in the U.S., we learned about Major General Smedley Butler of the U.S. Marine Corps. In 1935, he published a book called War is a Racket, in which he alleged that the U.S. had gone to war to protect American business interests, including its oil interests. In the book, he wrote... I helped make Mexico,
0: especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the ravaging of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. I helped purify Nicaragua for the international banking house of Brown Brothers in 1909-1912. to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see to it that standard oil went its way unmolested.
1: And I certainly don't put it past any nation to go to war to secure what it perceives as key resources that it needs. Resource wars have been extremely common in human history.
0: Do you think that American oil interests would point to the U.S. government having Make It Happen involvement in 9-11?
1: No, and for the same reason we've covered before, the evidence pointed to Afghanistan rather than Iraq. That, plus the fact that Afghanistan was not an oil exporter in 2001. You can argue, if you want, that control of Iraqi oil fields was a motive in the Iraq War. That's a subject I haven't researched in depth, so I won't take a position on it. But Afghanistan was simply not a player in the American oil supply. Some have tried to argue that the motive was to build pipelines across Afghanistan to allow oil to flow from one country to another in the region. But I find it hard to see this as a credible motive when the oil would not benefit the U.S., but other countries in the region. And Western business interests actually preferred different pipelines that didn't go across Afghani territory. Also, even though they've been trying to build an Afghani oil pipeline, it's been 20 years, and they only broke ground on it in 2018, and it's still not finished.
0: What about the claim the U.S. wanted 9-11 to happen so it could establish global or regional domination?
1: After the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, the U.S. inherited a global leadership role and was willing to take on the function of being the world's policeman, as some put it. Naturally, any nation finding itself in such a situation would want to plan for future stability of the world situation and be on the lookout for challenges to its position. And in fact, people in Washington think tanks were developing strategic plans for this and how to promote a global. Pax Americana, or American peace in the world, with the usual crossover between think tank members and officials of whatever administration happened to be in power at the time.
0: Would this point to make it happen involvement by the government?
1: I don't think so. Afghanistan was a minor country that was simply not a key player on the geopolitical scene. Iraq was a much bigger player. And if you wanted to argue that American geopolitical interests help motivate the Iraq war, you can. But if I were planning a strategic war to promote a global Pax Americana, I would not start by targeting Afghanistan. I'd start by going after somebody else, like the axis of evil countries that President Bush named in his 2002 State of the Union address, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea, those would be much more logical targets to frame and then deal with in a war. There are only so many wars one can fight at a time, and you need to choose them wisely. Going after Afghanistan instead of one of the bigger players would not be a wise choice, so I don't think this motive or the other ones we've considered would be good ones for the U.S. to have make-it-happen involvement in the 9-11 attacks.
0: Let's look at other evidence that's been proposed. What about the claim that a stand-down order had been given to our military to keep the four planes from being intercepted before they could hit their targets?
1: I've looked into this in considerable detail, but to keep the episode from running even longer than it is, I'll only cite the key facts. First, while during the Cold War, we had many fighters in the air or on the runway ready to respond to a Russian threat, the Cold War was over. As a result, on 9-11, there were only 14 military planes on alert to cover all 48 states in the continental United States. That's only one plane for every three or four states, so the number of planes ready to go was very small. Second, we have two air traffic systems in the U.S., The North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, which is primarily concerned with military air traffic, and the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, which focuses on civilian air traffic. For the military to intercept a civilian plane, NORAD would need to be given the signal from the FAA but in September of 2001, these systems were not linked and there was an elaborate procedure needed to trigger a NORAD interception. Popular Mechanics summarizes the procedure like this.
0: Under the protocols in place on September 11th, an air traffic controller's concerns that something was amiss had to ascend through multiple layers at the FAA and the Department of Defense before action could be taken. In the case of a hijacking, A controller would alert his or her supervisor, who contacted another supervisor, who confirmed suspicion of hijacking and informed a series of managers, all the way to the National ATC Command Center in Herndon, Virginia, which then notified FAA headquarters in Washington. The director of the Office of Civil Aviation Security was the FAA's hijack coordinator. If the director confirmed the incident as a hijacking, he or she would contact the Pentagon, to request a military escort aircraft from the National Military Command Center, or NMCC, which is located in the Joint Staff Area of the Pentagon and is the logistical and communications locus for the National Command Authority, the President and the Secretary of Defense. The NMCC then would request approval from the Office of the Secretary of Defense. If given, the order for a military escort would be relayed to NORAD, which would then order mission crew commanders at the appropriate Air Force bases in one of three continental U.S. air defense sectors to scramble fighters. The fighters would then scramble, receive target and vector information while aloft, and follow the hijacked airliner, monitoring its flight path and assisting in search and rescue in the case of
1: an emergency. But they wouldn't shoot the plane down because hijacked aircraft had not previously been used as weapons and military regulations forbade shooting down a civilian plane. It so happens that on the morning of 9-11... The air traffic officials at Boston Center became so alarmed by what was happening with Flight 11 that they bypassed the established protocol and contacted NORAD directly. NORAD then prepared to scramble planes, but because Flight 11, like all of the hijacked planes, had turned off its transponder, they didn't know where to point the intercept fighters. While they were trying to figure that out, Flight 11 slammed into World Trade Center 1, and the fighters weren't in the air until minutes later. Similar problems in tracking and communication occurred with the other three hijacked planes. Popular Mechanics has a detailed account of what happened with each one, and you can see how the aircraft and military officials were desperately trying to get the planes intercepted, but due to a lack of communication, experience, and information, they were unable to get there in time. Third, if there had been a stand-down order, it would have to be communicated throughout the military chain of command to keep the aircraft on the ground. That would mean that there would be multiple copies of the order, and in the 20 years since 9-11, no such copies have emerged. Finally, as we heard last episode from uh, Dr. Gwen Lindy, she saw evidence that they had on 9-11 done what was known as a flush during a cold during the Cold War, where you basically got every aircraft you could in the area aloft, regardless of whether it was ready to go or, or had armaments on it or not. So basically, the evidence is that there was not a stand-down order on 9-11.
0: Before we continue, I do want to stop and take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Jeffrey H., Janet W., Rachel H., Joseph G., and Michaela K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willets. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Single Player Mode. A Personalized Gaming Experience, the newest book from Truest Dunkworth, intended for middle and high schoolers. It is a book as intriguing as it is mysterious. Now available on Amazon. Jimmy, what about the claims that there was unusual stock market activity before 9-11, suggesting that some fat cats had been warned it was coming?
1: It's important to note a couple things here. First, when news stories about advanced knowledge of 9-11 leading to insider trading on the stock market hit the news it wasn't U.S. officials or businessmen that were under suspicion. Instead, it was Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda that were the suspects. Bin Laden it was a wealthy man and a terrorist financier, and the argument was that he or his associates used their advanced knowledge of 9-11 to profit from it. Second, Financial transactions have paper trails, and if there was advanced knowledge trading, it would be possible for the Security and Exchange Commission to track that back to whoever was responsible. And what happened when authorities looked into it? For a start, they didn't find U.S. government or businessmen who had been making suspicious trades, and that's what you'd expect, even if 9-11 were an inside job. Government officials often have their assets in blind trusts, meaning that they're not aware of or able to influence the trading that's being done on their behalf. That means that to benefit themselves, they would have had to interfere with the blind trust and display advanced knowledge of 9-11 to the trustees who are required by law to be unrelated and unaffiliated with them. Displaying such advanced knowledge to unrelated third parties would be extremely stupid. And it would be even stupider to display it to other people, such as friends and business associates, as the odds of getting caught by the Securities and Exchange Commission would go up enormously. I mean, that's what the Securities and Exchange Commission is for. And insider traders get caught all the time. So, any U.S. official with advanced knowledge of 9 11 would be massively stupid to try to profit from this or help his friends profit from it on the stock market. So, it's no surprise investigators didn't find any evidence of this.
0: What about bin Laden or his associates? Did they find anything there?
1: No. The 9 11 Commission reports
0: exhaustive investigations by the Securities and Exchange Commission, FBI, and other agencies have uncovered no evidence that anyone with advanced knowledge of the attacks profited through securities
1: transactions. And that's an admission against interest, because if they could show that bin Laden or his associates profited from 9-11, it would be one more way of blackening their names in the public by charging them with receiving blood money. I mean, imagine how the U.S. public would have felt if Bin Laden brought down the towers and made a buck off of it.
0: So how did these allegations arise then? Was there any unusual activity that prompted
1: the charges? In the footnote on the previous quotation, the 9-11 Commission explains,
0: Highly publicized allegations of insider trading in advance of 9-11 generally rest on reports of unusual pre-9-11 trading activity in companies whose stock plummeted after the attacks. Some unusual trading did in fact occur, but each such trade proved to have an innocuous explanation. For example, the volume of put options, investments that pay off only when a stock drops in price, surged in the parent companies of United Airlines on September 6th and American Airlines on September 10th, highly suspicious trading on its face. Yet further investigation has revealed that the trading had no connection with 9-11 a single U.S.-based institutional investor with no conceivable ties to Al-Qaeda purchased 95% of the United Airlines puts on September 6th as part of a trading strategy that also included buying 115,000 shares of American Airlines on September 10th. Similarly, much of the seemingly suspicious trading in American on September 10th was traced to a specific U.S.-based options trading newsletter faxed to its subscribers on Sunday, September 9th, which recommended these trades. These examples typify the evidence examined by the investigation. The SEC and the FBI, aided by other agencies and the securities industry, devoted enormous resources to investigating this issue, including securing the cooperation of many foreign governments. These investigators have found that the apparently suspicious consistently proved innocuous.
1: So 95% of the put orders betting that United Airlines would go down in price came from a single investor with no links to Al Qaeda and the same investor was buying American Airlines stocks which is what you would not do if you knew that both were airlines were going to drop in price because of the attacks. Essentially, by placing put orders on United and buying American, he was betting that or the investor was betting that United would go down in price and American would rise in price. But when both airlines planes got used on 9-11, they both tank. So you wouldn't bet that one airline would go down in price and the other would go up if you knew the 9-11 attacks were coming. Also, much of the unusual trading involving American Airlines was because an investor newsletter had just made the recommendation to its subscribers who then acted on the advice. Thus, no evidence emerged that Bin Laden or his associates profited from insider trading in advance of 9-11.
0: What should we make of the claim that the U.S. government was warned of the attacks in advance by other governments, and this was deliberately and maliciously ignored? It's true, we were warned, and repeatedly. According to the 9-11 Commission, During the spring and summer of 2001, U.S. intelligence agencies received a stream of warnings that Al-Qaeda planned, as one report put it, quote, something very, very, very big, end quote. Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet told us, The system was blinking red. Wikipedia summarizes, The U.S. administration, CIA, and FBI received multiple prior warnings from foreign governments and intelligence services, including France, Germany, the U.K., Israel, Jordan, Afghanistan, Egypt, Morocco, and Russia. The warnings varied in their level of detail, but all stated that they believed an Al-Qaeda attack inside the United States was imminent. Some of these warnings include the following March 2001, Italian intelligence warns of an Al Qaeda plot in the United States involving a massive strike involving aircraft based on their wiretap of an Al Qaeda cell in Milan. July 2001, Jordanian intelligence told U.S. officials that Al Qaeda was planning an attack on American soil, and Egyptian intelligence warned the CIA that 20 Al Qaeda jihadists were in the United States and that four of them were receiving flight training. August 2001, the Israeli Mossad gives the CIA a list of 19 terrorists living in the U.S. and says that they appear to be planning to carry out an attack in the near future. August 2001, the United Kingdom is warned three times of an imminent Al-Qaeda attack in the United States, the third specifying multiple airplane hijackings. According to the Sunday Herald, The report is passed on to President Bush a short time later. September 2001, Egyptian intelligence warns American officials that Al-Qaeda is in the advanced stages of executing a significant operation against an American target, probably within the U.S.
1: So elements in our government did have warning that 9-11 was afoot.
0: And with all of these warnings, does that mean that the U.S. government had advanced knowledge of 9-11 and deliberately ignored it? consistent with a let-it-happen-on-purpose
1: theory? That's the key question. We received warnings. Those warnings were ignored or not effectually acted upon. So what accounts for that? There are two principal theories we need to consider. One is that some party or parties in the U.S. government wanted 9-11 to happen and so deliberately and maliciously ignored the warnings. And two that the warnings were not acted upon because of bureaucratic incompetence.
0: What would the case for incompetence look like?
1: It starts with the principle that one shouldn't chalk up to malice what can be explained by simple incompetence. Human beings, and especially government bureaucracies, can display staggering amounts of incompetence. Anyone who's ever had to renew their driver's license at the Department of Motor Vehicles can tell you that. Here in California, the DMV is so slow, inefficient, and incompetent that there are actually private businesses that will handle the DMV for you so that you don't have to deal with it directly. And they stay in business because people are willing to pay good money just to avoid the frustration of having to deal with this government agency. I have used such a private service myself because of all of the incompetence of the California DMV. So do not underestimate the scope of government incompetence. Second, as was commonly discussed in the press following 9-11... There was a holdover from the 1990s in terms of how the government perceived terrorism cases. They were viewed not principally as national security issues, but as law enforcement problems. That meant lawyers were involved, and after the law enforcement debacles of the 1990s, like Waco and Ruby Ridge... Government officials and lawyers were afraid of coming down too hard and having additional disasters like that on their hands. We talked about Waco and Ruby Ridge back in episodes 96, 97, and 114 and the repercussions that followed them. Among other things, the government's overreactions in those cases led to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, and the Clinton administration didn't want any more repeats of events like Waco, Ruby Ridge, and Oklahoma City. What did they do to prevent them? They announced new policies to keep law enforcement in check, as well as policies for intelligence services like the CIA to keep them from running wild. And this involved putting procedural barriers between different agencies so that people's civil rights wouldn't be violated. But that meant that the agencies weren't allowed to communicate with each other freely and they weren't allowed to act aggressively without really good evidence because the lawyers were too shy, which hampered the investigation of the terrorists before nine eleven. We now know that various officials in the intelligence and law enforcement communities had significant pieces of the puzzle. For example, we know that the FBI had Mohammed Atta and his terrorist cell in New York on their radar. In 2005, Congressman Kurt Weldon of Pennsylvania told the Senate Judiciary Committee,
0: Mr. Speaker, I rise because information has come to my attention over the past several months that is very disturbing. I have learned that, in fact, one of our federal agencies had, in fact, identified the major New York cell of Muhammad Atta prior to 9 11. And I have learned, Mr. Speaker, that in September of 2000, that federal agency actually was prepared to bring the FBI in and prepared to work with the FBI to take down the cell that Muhammad Atta was involved in in New York City, along with two of the other terrorists. I have also learned, Mr. Speaker, that when that recommendation was discussed within that federal agency, the lawyers in the administration at that time said, you cannot pursue contact with the FBI against that cell. Mohammed Atta is in the U.S. on a green card, and we are fearful of the fallout from the Waco incident. So we did not allow that
1: federal agency to proceed. So they knew about Mohammed Atta, but the FBI was prevented from moving in because government lawyers didn't want another Waco-type situation on their hands.
0: Are there other factors that could contribute to the case that the 9-11 warnings weren't maliciously ignored?
1: One is the number of pieces of information that our intelligence networks have to keep track of. There are so many reports of possible threats emerging every day, many of which turn out to be false, that it's hard to know which ones need attention. It's easy to miss accurate reports in the flood of ones that don't pan out. Another factor is that many threats aren't specific enough to take action. If you want to stop an attack, you need to know things like who's going to commit it, where it's going to take place, when it's going to take place, and how it's going to take place. A warning may include pieces of that, but it may not include enough to let you take practical action. For example, suppose someone tells you that a given person is acting suspiciously and you think he may be planning an attack. You can't just arrest a person based on that. And you especially couldn't back in 2001 with the lawyers who will say, we don't have enough evidence to make this case stick. Or suppose you're told an attack will occur in this city on this date. That sounds pretty specific, but if you're not told how the attack will be carried out, you don't know what steps you need to take. I mean, should you be looking for a bomb? for a truck bomb, for a gunman, for hijacked airplanes. What are you supposed to do to stop the attack if you're just told it's going to happen in this city on this day? In order to have actionable intelligence, you need more than an indication of something in the works. You need specific pieces of information to stop it, as well as evidence to back up that information so you know it's more than just one more inaccurate rumor in a flood of such reports. I thus think that if you want to charge administration officials with deliberate malice, you need to do more than just make the allegation. The scope of government incompetence and the reasons why they may not act in a given situation are just too broad. You need specific evidence of actual deliberate malice being involved. Do you think such evidence exists? To evaluate the question, we need to consider the way decision-making happens in vast hierarchical bureaucracies like the U.S. government and its military and intelligence agencies. I can't rule out that some lower-level officials or set of officials were present somewhere in the vast apparatus that wanted 9-11 to happen for one reason or another and thus did deliberately and maliciously ignore the warnings, That's not impossible, given how many people are involved and how corrupt the human heart can be. But I haven't seen actual evidence of this happening with lower level officials. And I'd tell you if I had, just like in episode 151, I told you about the Joint Chiefs of Staff proposing Operation Northwoods, which involved make it happen on purpose, terrorism on U.S. soil. But I haven't found such evidence, and without it, I have no basis to make a positive charge against anyone. So I don't have reason to depart from government incompetence as the reason that lower-level officials didn't act effectively. In fact, many wanted to act and tried to act, but were stopped by the bureaucracy and the cautious lawyers.
0: What about higher-level officials? The individuals people most often focus on are President Bush and Vice President Cheney.
1: If someone wants to argue that they handled the situation before 9-11 in an incompetent manner, I don't have a problem with that. That's certainly something one could argue. It's obvious in hindsight that they should have directed their underlings to pursue the matter more aggressively. Whether their underlings had presented them with enough evidence that they should have known this at the time... Is another matter. You need to review all the evidence they personally had seen to make that determination. And that's a subject on which opinions can vary. So I don't have a problem with people arguing that they displayed incompetence. I also don't have a problem with people arguing that what they did was reasonable given what their underlings and advisors had told them about the situation. Like I said, opinions could vary depending on your read of what evidence they had been shown.
0: Do you think we have good evidence that more than incompetence was involved, that they wanted 9-11 to happen? I don't.
1: In the first place, we looked at the proposed motives earlier, and I concluded that they weren't particularly strong. There's evidence that President Bush may have wanted to go to war with Iraq, But that doesn't translate into wanting 9-11 to happen. In fact, it translates into a motive against wanting 9-11 to happen. Because if you go to war with Afghanistan, it's going to be a distraction. And you're going to have to devote a lot of your military resources to fighting the war in Afghanistan. If you really wanted to go in and knock over Saddam, you'd want to save your resources for fighting that war. Fighting wars in two separate countries when you don't have to is stupid. So Bush would have a motive not to want 9-11 to happen. If 9-11 could have been stopped, it would have prevented the Afghan war and allowed the U.S. to focus all its resources on Iraq. Thus, if you think Bush was determined to go to war with Iraq, it cuts against the idea that he would have wanted 9-11. Do we have additional evidence against this view? I think so. First, for President Bush and Vice President Cheney to want 9-11, that would mean that they wanted terrorist attacks causing mass numbers of casualties to occur on American soil. They would not have known precisely how many would die. It might be more or less than the 3,000 who did, but it would still involve them positively willing the death of large numbers of American citizens. And that would require for them to be full-blown homicidal psychopaths because only a homicidal psychopath would seriously desire such a thing. Now, many people have low opinions of President Bush and Vice President Cheney, but it wouldn't just be them. It would be everybody at the top of the administration who was in on the discussions ahead of 9-11 who would have to be involved. And that kind of concentration of homicidal psychopaths is very statistically unlikely. Statistically, there should have been some non-psychopaths who were in on the discussions and who would have come forward to blow the whistle at least sometime in the 20 years that have passed since then. We would expect someone from Bush's inner circle to come forward and say he wanted it to happen.
0: What if such people were intimidated into silence?
1: Well, there's two problems with this. First, it's been 20 years, and the Bush administration has been out of power for 12 years. Whatever intimidation could have been in play in the early days is gone, giving whistleblowers ample time to emerge. Secondly, and more fundamentally, the Bush administration didn't take action against critics from the inner circle when it was in power. For example, Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill clashed with Bush, and they didn't kill him or his family. They just fired him. And after the Iraq invasion, O'Neill was sharply critical of President Bush and claimed, that in, claimed in public that the administration had been determined to go to war with Iraq. But he didn't claim that Bush wanted 9 11 to happen. Are there
0: any concrete actions the president and vice president took that would suggest that they
1: didn't want 9 11? Two such actions particularly stand out in my mind. First, the administration had already determined to take on Al Qaeda, according to the 9 11 Commission, before the attacks occurred. The Bush administration
0: began developing a new strategy with the stated goal of eliminating the Al Qaeda threat
1: within three to five years so they were already planning on dealing with al-Qaeda and were taking steps in that direction. This suggests they didn't want al-Qaeda to hurt American citizens, and they were simply slow in dealing with the threat. That would be consistent with an incompetence claim, but not with the idea that they maliciously wanted the 9-11 attacks. What's the second action you mentioned? Earlier, we mentioned that at the time, military regulations forbade shooting down a civilian plane because none had ever been used as a weapon before. But on the day of 9 11, once it became obvious that planes were being used as weapons, President Bush overrode that policy and ordered that Flight 93 be shot down. When Flight 77 turned towards Washington, they thought it might be headed for the White House. It ultimately hit the Pentagon, but. They didn't know that's where it was heading, and so the Secret Service agents in the White House physically grabbed Vice President Cheney out of his chair and forced him into the secure shelter bunker underneath the White House. From there, they established communication with President Bush, who had boarded Air Force One in Florida, and called Cheney while he was waiting for takeoff. According to the notes Cheney took on the conversation, President Bush said, We're at war. Somebody's going to pay. Suggesting he wasn't in favor of what happened. Cheney initially spoke with Bush from a tunnel in the shelter, but he then proceeded to a conference room. According to the 9-11 Commission,
0: We have concluded from the available evidence that the vice president arrived in the conference room shortly before 10 o'clock, perhaps at 9.58. The vice president recalled being told just after his arrival that the Air Force was trying to establish a Combat Air Patrol, or CAP, over Washington. The vice president stated that he called the president to discuss the rules of engagement for the CAP. He recalled feeling that it did no good to establish the CAP unless the pilots had instructions on whether they were authorized to shoot if the plane would not divert. He said the president signed off on that concept. The president said he remembered such a conversation and that it reminded him of when he had been an interceptor pilot the president emphasized to us that he had authorized the shootdown of hijacked aircraft at 1002 the communicators in the shelter began receiving reports from the secret service of an inbound aircraft presumably hijacked heading toward washington that aircraft was united 93 the secret service was getting this information directly from the faa the faa may have been tracking the progress of united 93 on a display that showed its projected path to Washington, not its actual radar return. Thus, the Secret Service was relying on projections.
1: So they had a report that Flight 93 was heading towards Washington, and Vice President Cheney confirmed the order to engage it and shoot it down. Not all of the aides in the bunker had heard the initial conversation with the president, so they suggested that Cheney call him back for confirmation now that they had an actual plane to be shot down.
0: The vice president was logged calling the president at 10.18 for a two-minute conversation that obtained the confirmation. On Air Force One, the president's press secretary was taking notes. Ari Fleischer recorded that at 10.20, the president told him that he had authorized a shootdown of aircraft if necessary.
1: We thus have multiple sources, both from on Air Force One and within the White House bunker, recording the presidential shoot-down order. Ultimately, it turned out that the FAA's projected course for Flight 93 was mistaken, and the plane had already gone down at 10.03 a.m. a few minutes earlier.
0: Haven't some alleged that Flight 93 was shot down?
1: They have, and if that were true, it would only be further evidence that President Bush did not want 9-11 to happen. However, the evidence points the other way. He did give the shoot-down order, but the plane had already crashed because of the passenger revolt. The allegations that it was shot down are based on the fact that a white jet was seen circling the area of the crash site, and some later proposed that it had fired a missile at the plane. However, as we discussed last episode, it was a private passenger plane that the FAA had asked to look for the crash site and confirm that Flight 93 was down, And we know all about this plane and who was on it. It was an eight-person business plane owned by the VF Corporation, which is a clothing company that markets Wrangler jeans, among other things. And it was coming in for a landing at the nearby Johnstown Cambria Airport, so it diverted to investigate at the FAA's request. Needless to say, as a tiny private business plane owned by a clothing company, it had no armaments and could not have fired a missile at Flight 93, even if that plane had still been in the air.
0: Let's ask the next question then. Was there a post-9-11 cover-up by
1: the U.S. government? This is a whole different question than whether officials caused or wanted 9-11 to happen, and it has to be taken seriously. The government keeps lots of things to itself, and it doesn't reveal everything it knows about what happened in a crisis like 9-11. It keeps stuff classified, especially when the information could be embarrassing to the U.S. or its allies. What about in this case? Are there things that the U.S. may have covered up? Well, I already mentioned one that I strongly suspect, which is that we later got evidence that Pakistani intelligence was in bed with Al-Qaeda and may have been aware of the attacks. And then our government didn't choose to mention that because we really needed Pakistan as an ally in the war on terror. And there are certainly things that, you know, it's certain they didn't tell us everything, but that's normal. When it comes to specific things that we can identify, there are two additional ones that come to mind. First, when the airplanes and the three World Trade Center towers went down, they released an an enormous amount of dust and chemicals into the environment in New York City. Afterwards, people exposed to this began to report suffering from a variety of health problems, some of them fatal. In fact, a friend of mine is a registered nurse, and her brother was there and was exposed to the dust and chemicals, and he then became ill and died at an abnormally young age. My friend was convinced that it was the toxic dust and debris from Ground Zero that were responsible for her brother's death. But public health officials, including the Environmental Protection Agency, downplayed the risk of this.
0: Isn't that something you would expect? That government officials would want to reassure panicked New York residents? in the terrifying wake of 9-11, that things were safe again?
1: Government officials have a tendency to downplay safety risks as a way of preventing the public from panicking. They did the same thing after the U.S. Postal Service was weaponized in the anthrax attacks that began a week later, and that we'll be discussing in a future episode. I remember very well how they said, don't worry, anthrax can't get out of the envelope, so postal workers and the public should be safe and then seeing people on TV news demonstrating just how easily powder can get out of an envelope and spread through the air. So I have no trouble believing that health officials downplayed the threat posed by toxic dust and debris from Ground Zero. Ultimately, Congress ended up passing a law which was signed by President Obama in 2011 to authorize health compensation payments for people who suffered illnesses connected with it. And there have been various lawsuits and settlements on the matter as well. So I think there is merit to at least a limited cover-up of the health effects from ground zero. That's not to say that I can show that public officials deliberately lied, but I think it's reasonable to hold that there was at least an unwillingness to take the evidence as seriously as it should have been taken.
0: You said there was at least one other thing that the U.S. government may have been
1: covering up. What was that? Saudi involvement in 9-11. In 2002, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees formed a joint inquiry into the events of 9-11. This is not the same group as the later 9-11 Commission, but it issued its own report in December of 2002. The final part of that report was entitled, Part 4, Finding Discussion and Narrative Regarding Certain Sensitive National Security Matters. It was 28 pages long, and so it's come to be known as the 28 pages. Initially, all of this section was classified and not released to the public. President Bush claimed that releasing it would, quote, reveal sources and methods that would make it harder for us to win the war on terror. It would help the enemy if they knew our sources and methods, close quote but many people suspected that it wasn't just intelligence sources and methods that were being protected. It was specific people who had been involved in the plot and that were from Saudi Arabia. And why would people think that? As soon as the public got a look at the list of the 19 hijackers, they noticed something odd. One of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta, who was the ringleader and one of the pilots, was from Egypt. One of the hijackers, Ziad Jarrah, another of the pilots, was from Lebanon. And two of the hijackers, including Marwan al-Shehi, who was a third pilot, were from the United Arab Emirates. But all of the other 15 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. It looked like with one exception, the pilots were from other countries and with one exception, the muscle hijackers were entirely from Saudi Arabia. That startlingly high number of hijackers from one country, concentrated as they were among the muscle rather than the pilots, raised questions about that country's involvement in the attacks. I mean, if it had turned out that 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Iraq, the Bush administration would have immediately pointed to that as evidence that Saddam Hussein was involved. So, why didn't they point to this as evidence that Saudi Arabia was involved? It naturally raised suspicions, and so people suspected that the 28 pages contained evidence of Saudi involvement. And people suspected that Saudi individuals were being shielded. Why would the Bush administration want to do that? Because Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important country in the Middle East. It has the holy sites of Islam like Mecca and Medina, so it's important to Muslims worldwide. It's also, at least nominally, a U.S. ally and a key to maintaining peace in the Middle East. It's important to the West, including America, because of its oil supply. And it became even more important to America after 9-11 because it was helping us in the war on terror, such as by letting us hunt down terrorists on Saudi soil. So there were bunches of reasons why the Bush administration would not want to embarrass the kingdom, such as by implicating high Saudi officials or members of the royal family in 9-11. What happened with the 28 pages? A movement began to get them declassified. Uh, This movement included family members of people killed on 9-11, members of the 9-11 truth movement, insurance companies, and various politicians, including both Democrats and Republicans. However, the movement initially did not meet with much success. The Bush administration steadfastly refused to release the 28 pages, and the Obama administration that followed it also refused to release them until the very last year of Obama's presidency when he was on his way out of office. In 2016, the Obama administration finally released the 28 pages. Even then, it redacted parts of the document, so there are words, phrases, and sentences that you can't read because they're blacked out. But most of it is visible, and we'll have a link to it so you can read the pages for yourself.
0: And what did people learn when the 28 pages were declassified?
1: that there was evidence that Saudi nationals, including prominent officials and even a member of the royal family, were connected with 9-11. They provided logistical and financial aid to Al-Qaeda, and among those implicated were people from the Saudi embassy in America, including the Saudi ambassador himself, Prince Bandar, a member of the royal family. Does that mean that the
0: king of Saudi Arabia, who in 2001 was King Fahd, was involved? No,
1: the royal family, or the House of Saud, is massive. It has something like 15,000 members, about 2,000 of whom are particularly influential. So there's certainly a wide range of views within the House of Saud. Not everybody is going to be on the same page with 15,000 people involved. As a result, you can't take the actions of particular members of the royal family as representing the whole family or the king. Prince Bandar, as the U.S. ambassador, was certainly an influential member of the family, but he was not a son of King Fahd. His father was someone else. The term prince is used quite broadly in the House of Saud, so you don't have to be a son of the king to be a prince. Also, because of the crazy politics in the Middle East, the support of al-Qaeda by Saudi officials doesn't necessarily mean that they approve of everything al-Qaeda was doing.
0: Why not? Why would they support the organization if they didn't agree with or approve of it?
1: Because there is tension between the House of Saud and al-Qaeda, and they're afraid of being overthrown. Al-Qaeda is angry with the House of Saud for allowing U.S. forces to be stationed on Saudi soil. We have five military bases in Saudi Arabia, and Al-Qaeda views this as a desecration of their holy land containing the holy sites of Mecca and Medina. They thus don't like the U.S.-Saudi alliance." and the Saudi royal family is afraid that hardline Islamists like al-Qaeda could one day try to overthrow them and purify the land of their corrupting influence. As a result, in the logic of the politics of the region, it can make sense to help fund al-Qaeda's efforts as long as they aren't targeted towards the kingdom. In other words, help keep the terrorists busy attacking other people so that their attention isn't focused on their grievances with the kingdom. As bizarre as it sounds, for Saudis to support al-Qaeda does not mean automatically that they approve of everything the terrorist organization is doing. It may be support they're giving them just for cynical, tactical reasons to keep themselves safe. On the other hand, it's quite possible that some in the Saudi administration are genuinely sympathetic with al-Qaeda. The views of a particular person would have to be determined by looking at the evidence concerning him in particular.
0: What do you make of the Bush and Obama administration's efforts to keep the 28 pages concealed for so long?
1: I think it's a judgment call. Saudi Arabia is a crucial country in the Middle East, and it would be in U.S. national interest not to jeopardize our relationship with it for multiple reasons, including oil and the need to fight terrorists on Saudi soil. As a result, I think people could take different positions on whether it was reasonable for the 28 pages to be classified for as long as they were.
0: Even though President Bush misled the public about why the 28 pages were being withheld from the public
1: i expect every american president and every world leader to withhold information from his people and even lie when national security interests are at stake it just goes with the territory whether you think lying is ever justified or not it's going to happen in these situations and i don't have reason to fault president bush any more than any other president in this case all of them withhold information, distort it, and even lie about it when they think national security is at stake. And Saudi Arabia was important to our national security. I'm more concerned when national security isn't involved and they're still lying.
0: Mm. Like with aliens. I'm oh, just kidding.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Are there other potential grounds for criticism of the Bush administration's actions?
1: Well, no doubt there are, you can criticize any administration on numerous grounds. In this case, it seems to me that you can criticize the Bush administration of treating 9-11 as an opportunity to invade Iraq. They couldn't show that Iraq was behind 9-11, so they had to make the case for war on other grounds, namely the reported weapons of mass destruction. Regardless of what you think of that issue, I do think it's fair to say that the Bush administration decided to go to war with Iraq in 2003 because of 9-11. They may have gone to war with Iraq anyway, but after 9-11 and the invasion of Afghanistan, I think they said to themselves, now is the best time to go while we have the momentum if we wait for the war in Afghanistan to wind down, it'll be harder to do what we need to do in Iraq. The easier thing to do is lump both of these invasions together under the heading of the war on terror. In Afghanistan's case, we're responding to a terrorist attack that has already been committed. And in Iraq's case, we're preventing terrorist attacks that Saddam could one day commit using his weapons of mass destruction. So now is the time to go. Okay, so what do you make of that viewpoint? I think it's debatable. On the one hand, you could argue that it represents opportunistic exploitation of the 9-11 situation. But on the other hand, you could argue that they were sincerely doing what they thought was right and shouldn't be faulted.
0: Is there anything else we should cover before you give your bottom line on
1: 9-11? As we noted in our previous episode, the literature on 9-11 is vast far more than I could possibly cover without devoting dozens of episodes to this topic. As a result, I've had to sharply limit the material we dealt with. That means excluding wide swaths of information from multiple perspectives. I'm sure there are many members of the audience who wish that I'd included their favorite argument or counter-argument, but it wasn't possible. I just hope that whatever your perspective on 9-11 is, whether you agree with my conclusions or not, that you'll appreciate how I've tried to approach this issue in an open-minded way. As we showed back in episode 151 on Operation Northwoods, I will tell you about false flag operations proposed by U.S. officials. As we showed back in episode 71 on the murder of Frank Olson by the CIA, I will tell you about criminal activity in the intelligence community. And as we showed back in episodes 7, 96, 97, 107, 108, and 114 on Watergate, Waco, Ruby Ridge, and the break-in to expose FBI secrets, I will tell you about government and law enforcement misdeeds. So I hope that listeners will appreciate the open-minded and fair way I try to approach issues like this, even if they come to different conclusions than I have.
0: So, Jimmy, that does bring us to
1: the bottom line. What is your bottom line on 9-11? 9-11 was a horrific event that is seared into my memory as well as the memories of countless Americans and other people around the world. While nothing is impossible, the evidence indicates that the attacks were carried out using four hijacked airplanes and that these planes were responsible for the damage that was done. Controlled demolitions or similar things were not involved. The evidence also shows that Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda organization carried out the attacks. It does not show that U.S. officials were involved in making the events happen. It does show that U.S. officials had enough knowledge of the attacks that they should have moved aggressively to prevent them. However, it does not show that U.S. officials deliberately and maliciously wanted the attacks to take place. Finally, it shows that limited cover-ups did take place in the wake of 9-11. In particular, U.S. health authorities downplayed the risks associated with the toxic dust and debris from ground zero, and the U.S. hid its knowledge of the involvement of various Saudi Arabians in supporting the attack. Also, there is evidence that the U.S. already was planning to go to war with Iraq, and that 9-11 influenced the timing of this war.
0: Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener on the 9-11 attacks?
1: We'll have a link to the bonus interview I did with Dr. Gwyn Lindy, the Air Force Colonel who was there at the Pentagon on 9-11. Also, we'll have links to books from both perspectives on this. We'll have the 9-11 Commission Report, Popular Mechanics Book, Debunking 9-11 Myths. And if you get the Kindle version of that, it's very easy to click through to the different 9-11 Truth websites that Popular Mechanics is responding to, because when they'll present something they consider a myth, they'll give you a link to where it comes from so you can read the charge in context for yourself. We'll also have a link to Douglas Chirangano's book, American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, which is a pro-9-11 truth movement book, as well as David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodward's book, 9-11 Unmasked, which is another truth movement book. We'll have a link to Catholic Answers booklet Pillar of Fire, Pillar of Truth, that we told you about uh, last episode, that I'm one of the authors of. We'll also have links to articles on the 9 11 attacks, 9 11 conspiracy theories, the 9 11 truth movement. We'll have a link to 911truth.org. Also, links to information about Saddam Hussein's possible links with Al Qaeda, the Iraqi Air Force being essentially donated to Iran during Operation Desert Storm, information on the rationale for the Iraq War, 9-11 advanced knowledge theories, ground zero health effects, an article on the 28 pages, the text of the 28 pages, as well as the Voices from the Air video documentary that you heard excerpts from last episode, videos of controlled demolitions, video of the Twin Towers coming down, a TSA video, a CBS video, list of recordings of Osama bin Laden, a transcript of the Al Jazeera 2004 interview, the interview with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, the 2000 Republican Party platform, Bush's former Treasury Secretary on the Iraq invasion, and an article on Smedley Butler's book, War is a Racket. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? Well, we have a UAP or UFO theme this week. We've heard commentary from many American sources about the Defense Department and what it's released about UFOs or UAPs, as they're calling them now, you may wonder, well, what do people in other countries think? So we'll have a link about European perspectives on UAPs. Also, the FAA for a long time has downplayed, like other agencies, has downplayed any interest in UAPs saying, yeah, we really don't track those things. But uh, turns out they do log UAP encounters, and we'll have an article from the debrief talking about how they've now admitted that. Before we go, we want to say a special thanks once again to Dr. Gwynne Lindy for sharing her experiences with us from 9 11 and what she saw at the Pentagon. Be sure to check out the full bonus video interview with her on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Akin. And be sure to subscribe and hit the bell notifications while you're there because I'm trying to grow my channel and I'd really appreciate it.
0: Very good. So that's it from us. Uh, What are your theories about the 9 11 attacks and who was responsible? You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about?
1: Next week, Dom, we'll be doing tests that could reveal whether people like you and I have psychic abilities. Ooh, I knew you were going to say that, too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because it's in the script. It's in the script, yeah, I know. (laughs) So, folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. And you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at SQPN.com slash Mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Starquest.